16, but I'm going to start in verse 1. So maybe by the time we get through this, this portion of, of John, you'll basically have John 3 memorized. And that's kind of our, our hope as we continue to read it week in and week out here. But there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of the water, of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we hear, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe them, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that, every, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We ask you to, to guide us in our study. That you would, that you would work. That your spirit would, would be at work in this room. And in opening our, our hearts and our, our minds that we might just comprehend and, and grasp these things. Lord, I pray that you would transform us, equip us, shape us. May us be people who long to go and, and tell the world about Jesus Christ, who is the, the greatest of all gifts from God. Lord, we pray that if there is one here or listening that doesn't that doesn't know you, that hasn't placed their faith or trust in, in Jesus Christ. Lord, I, I pray that today would be the day of salvation for them. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I, I mentioned something a while ago in our series in the Gospel of John. I, I don't remember what my point was in bringing it up at the time, although I'm sure it was a, a good one. I, I mentioned that I didn't think that John 3.16 should be in red in our Bibles, right? Those, some Bibles have red letters that show the words of Jesus. And, and I said, I, 
I, I didn't think that John 3.16 should be in red, that it was actually uh, John, his commentary on what Jesus had just said. I know that some people are maybe squirming a little bit. Uh, what? Jesus didn't say John 3.16? Um, but we need to understand that the gospel of John was written some 30 or 40 years after Jesus' ascension. So technically, right, it's possible that John 3.16 is John's word, the apostle John's words ascribed to Jesus. But Jesus didn't pen them. I don't think that's the case either, though. I, I think starting in verse 16, we get John's commentary on what Jesus had just said. And, and you can differ with me on that. I will say that I'm not alone. Um, as you read through John's gospel, it seems that's the way John works. He ascribes words to, to Jesus, and then he has commentary on them. So I think there's, there's good evidence to believe that, but you can differ, because in the end, it doesn't really matter. Let me just ask you this. For you, does it take away from John 3.16 in any way if you believe that Jesus didn't say it? That John was commenting on what Jesus said in his conversation with Nicodemus and specifically what he said in verse 15. Let me ask you the same question a little bit differently. What carries higher weight in the Bible? Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, a sermon that Jesus gave, or Paul's letter to the Philippians. What carries more weight? Some people would say that the red letters in the Bible, specifically the Sermon on the Mount, carries more weight, and in fact, we should all understand all of the other things in the Bible, Philippians, Paul's writings, Peter's writings, whatever, through the, the lens of what Jesus said. The fact is, it doesn't matter who wrote the book in our canon of Scripture. It isn't the, the author or the fact that certain portions were ascribed to what Jesus said. The fact is, the words in red are God's word, just as the writings of Paul that we have in our Bible is God's word. You can't set God's word up against God's word and say one portion is more authoritative than another. It doesn't work that way. And this is simply what we call the doctrine of divine inspiration. The Bible says that the scriptures are God-breathed. The Bible tells us that the men that wrote it were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And in what came from their pen was exactly what God wanted them to say while preserving their own styles and personalities in the process. It isn't the, the authors of the scriptures that were inspired to write. We think of inspiration that way. Sometimes. We were moved or inspired to do something. We were inspired to clean out the closet or to write a book. 
In this case, it was the scriptures that were inspired. God used human authors to accomplish his purpose. It's, it's actually as it if God spoke it audibly. I'm not sure who said it. I want to attribute it to Mike Horton, but I'm not sure. Um, but he, he said, if you want to hear God speak, or if you want God to speak to you, then read the Bible. If you want God to speak to you audibly, then read it out loud. Because what we have, God's word to us, is this. It's scripture. We believe in what's called verbal plenary inspiration. It means that the, the entire or whole Bible, plenary, is inspired right down to the very word that's verbal. We're not saying that God dictated it. That God spoke in the ears and they wrote down exactly what they wanted to say. We're saying something even more complex. We're saying that when Paul sat in a prison and wrote those letters, Paul was writing exactly what Paul wanted to say, but every word was exactly what God had to say to the church as well. It was a, a sovereign movement of God. The Spirit of God was moving individuals as they wrote so that the product was actually the Word of God. So then, it doesn't contain errors. It doesn't contain contradictions. In fact, the Bible is incapable of error because it is God's Word. It doesn't just contain God's Word. It is God's Word. Here's my point. When we understand inspiration properly, then it doesn't matter if John 3.16 is in red or not. Or if it's commentary added by John. And in fact, Bibles with red letters, I'm not sure why it, it matters. I guess it is helpful. But it would be a mistake to think that the words in red are more important or carry more weight than any other portion of God's word. God's word is God's word. Now, we got that out of the way. Let's turn our attention to John 3.16 once again. Last time we focused our attention on the, the great love that God has in that he would send his own son. I, I think that many times here we, we focus in this verse on, on the word world. He loved the, the world. And while that is important, the, the focus of the verse isn't that God's love is, is highlighted because it is extended to all people, the world, everyone in it. That isn't the point. I think Don Carson here makes this point well. He says, quote, God's love is to be admired not because the world is so big and includes so many people, but because the world is so bad. That's how, he says, that is the, the customary connotation of the, the Greek word cosmos. The, the world is so wicked that John elsewhere forbids Christians to love it or to have anything to do with the world. In 1 John 2, 15 through 17. He goes on to say there is no contradiction between this prohibition and the fact that God does love it. Christians are not to love the world with selfish love and participation. God loves the world with the selfless, costly love of redemption. 
that God would send his own son into this evil place in order to bring salvation is remarkable. It's truly a great love. In, in Matthew chapter 21, Jesus tells a parable. The parable is about a, a landowner of a vineyard. And, the, and then he, he takes off and he leaves some tenants in charge. And then it was time for the, the harvest and he sends some servants back. You remember this story and the tenants beat one stone another and kill another. So the, the landowner sends a, another servant to go and, and get what it was due him. And they do the same to those. So what does the landowner do? He sends his own son into that mess and they kill him. Now, of course, the point of the parable is that those wicked tenants in the story are the religious leaders in Jesus' day. They reject Jesus and they will ultimately kill him. But just the same, understand here that the father understood what kind of environment he was sending the son into. A, a wicked and a hostile world. And, and I think when we read that in John 3, 16, the, the word world, God loved the, the world so much, that the evil place that, that exists, that he would send his own son into that mess for the purpose of redeeming those who are his. Here, here's the question, and I asked this last week. How do we know that God loves us? We said <clears throat> last time, it's because he sent his own son. Some will say, well, we know that God loves us because of the, of the beauty in the world. There's, there's so much beauty in the world, we know that God loves us. And there is incredible beauty in the world. There is no doubt of that. The heavens declare the, the glory of God. And I remember once when I was in Williston, we went out of town one night and we just sat there for the longest time watching the, the northern lights. It was incredible. I haven't seen anything like it to this day. I remember talking about how it was a display of, of God's handiwork. It was, it was beautiful. It said something of the, of the creator. Is that how we know that God loves us because such beauty exists? The fact is, just as that awesome beauty exists, so does tremendous evil. There are a lot of people listening here that can't get the, the images of September 11, 2001 out of our heads, right? It was, it was horrific seeing those planes hit the towers, watching them crumble, people jumping off the towers and others running for their lives. Not a beautiful picture. In fact, it was the opposite. Natural disasters, hurricanes, tsunamis, fires, the list goes on. Some others might say, well, we know that God loves us because we are loving people. We are, we're capable of love. We have such deep love for other people. We know that, that God loves us because we value love. And while that is true, we do value love. It is also true that there is great hate in our world. There are examples of hate at every turn. People do unloving things to people that they do not even know, and perhaps even worse than that is that they do unloving things to the people who they are supposed to, to care for. We read of parents abusing their children, a parent that is supposed to care for a child and in turn hurts them. The answer, how do we know that God loves us, is he sent his son to save us. But think about this for a moment. We are sinners, every one of us, and God is holy. He is he hates sin. 
Think about this from the point of a, a sinner before an all holy God. A sinner that continues to do the things that God forbids. I, I don't know about you. Well, I do. But I don't know what you would say. But me, in and of myself, I couldn't stand in front of God Almighty. My wickedness wouldn't hold up. His holiness would consume me. I love what John Calvin says. He says, and I put this quote in the, in the sermon notes on line there. You can scan that code in the bulletin. You saw, saw that, right? Calvin says this, For since God necessarily hates sin, how shall we believe that we are loved by him until atonement has been made for those sins on account of which he is justly offended at us? In other words, we know that God loves us when that which about us that has offended God has been dealt with. When our sins are truly put away, then we know that God loves us. This is why the, the love of God is one of the, the greatest attributes and is tied, like we saw last week, to the fact that Jesus Christ is the, the greatest of all gifts. For it is through Jesus Christ that we know the love of God and that we're able to love him as well. You might have seen the, the little card called The Greatest Gift. I, I put it in the, in the bulletin if you got that. John 3.16 is arranged down one side of the card almost word by word and then next to each word is a descriptive phrase. So next to God it would say the greatest lover and so loved to the greatest degree the world the greatest company that he gave the greatest act that whosoever the greatest opportunity believeth the greatest simplicity in him the greatest attraction should not perish the greatest promise but the greatest difference have the greatest certainty everlasting life the greatest possession Christ is the greatest gift I think that this really highlights the, the greatness of this verse all of that is packed into this, this short verse Martin Luther said John 3.16 is the gospel in miniature let's just take a, a few minutes here then and think about Christ is the greatest gift first of all we need to recognize that Jesus is the greatest gift because he is the best that God had to give we see this in a number of ways just think first about the word only in the verse for God so loved the world that he gave his only son or some say only begotten son in the Greek it's, it's one word only begotten 
But in our way of thinking, it's, it, it's referring to, to physical generation. The, the Greek word is, is monogenesis. You, you, get, you hear that, right? Mono, one, genesis. So the beginning of something. Uh, so a single born son. That would be our sense. But it means more than that in the original language. The fact is, this word has caused a, a great deal of theological controversy in the church by those who, who took it to mean that this was one, one of, one, God's one son or his one physically generated son. They would argue that since the Bible says this, that there was a time in which Jesus Christ was not. That he was therefore God's first and, and greatest creation. In other words, Jesus didn't exist from all eternity, but was created. And, of course, we know that this is foolish, but still, it was the, the teaching of some, the, the Arians, not long after the apostles died, really, that the church had to have a, 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 an ecumenical council in 325 to, to deal with this issue. And the issue then still remained for years. You had all these people creating these songs that would, that would talk about how there was a time in which Jesus Christ was not. Today, it's the Jehovah's Witnesses. If you ever get in a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness, ask about John 3.16 and the word only. It'll be an interesting conversation. Of course, these things are a little bit foolish to say that Jesus was created. We've already seen clearly in the Gospel of John that this isn't the case. We've seen that he was in the beginning with God. All things were created by him and through him. In other words, there was never a time in which he was not. Because in the beginning he was. The word monogenesis here means unique. Or more literally, it means the single of its kind. There's nobody else like him. That's, that's the idea. He's the unique son of God. There's no equal to Jesus. He is the very image of God. And because there is none like him, when God gave him, he very, gave the very best that he could give. Jesus is not only the best that God could fashion. He isn't a creature made in the image of God like we, we are. But Jesus is, is actually God incarnate. Why this is important is because when God gave Jesus, he gave himself. And to give oneself is the greatest gift that one can give. I read a story in one of my counseling books about a, a married couple that went into their pastor for counseling because they were having problems in their marriage. At one point, the husband was really frustrated and he told his wife that he had given her everything that she could have ever wanted. She never lacked for anything. Clothes, cars, vacations. And as he listed all of these things, his wife just listened. And when he was done, she said, yes, you've given me a lot, but it isn't what you've given me that is the issue. It's what you haven't given me. You haven't given me yourself. And the point is simple. The greatest gift that anyone can give is themselves. And we see that when the Father put forward his Son, Jesus, God incarnate. That he was giving the very best for us. Another reason for Jesus being the greatest gift that is given is that Jesus was a planned gift from before the foundation of the world. 
Jesus is the, the greatest gift because God planned to give him before the world was ever created. God always intended to give Jesus. This was God's plan from the, the very start of all things. When we speak of, of covenants or agreements in Scripture, and when we talk about the the ordering of a scripture and how God relates to us. We think of, of covenants. And there's three overarching covenants. There's the, the covenant of, of works, the covenant of grace, but there's also a, a third. It's what we call the covenant of redemption. And, and this was an agreement between the members of the Trinity, an agreement concerning the, the plan of redemption. In other words, the, the story of the Bible is the story of redemption. It's God playing out God's, it's the playing out of God's plan that was agreed upon in eternity past. The agreement between the Father and the Son didn't just happen in the garden in Acts chapter 17. It happened before the world began. Just think of verses that indicate this for a moment. Eight centuries before Jesus died, Isaiah 53 we get one of the most graphic visions of Jesus' death. And in verse 10, we read that it was the will of the Lord to crush him and cause him to suffer. Certainly some people in our day, more progressive Christians, have a real problem with this. They say that this interpretation is, uh, amounts to, to cosmic child abuse. What they don't understand is that this was the plan of God from before the foundation of the world. This was agreed to by Jesus. And Jesus went willingly to the cross. The apostle Peter understood this. In Peter's great sermon at Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, we read, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killing by the hands of lawless men. Just think about that statement for a moment. Peter blames those who had their hands in the death of Jesus. He's not taking away the, the blame. These, these people that were there listening to Peter, he said, you killed him by crucifying him. You are the lawless ones. He doesn't shift the blame for Jesus' death, but he makes it abundantly clear that this was God's plan all along. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Why? Because the giving of Jesus for our salvation was the greatest thing that he could do. This is why in the book of Revelation, in chapter 13, Jesus is, is seen as the, the Lamb of God that was slain before the foundation of the world. It's a beautiful picture in that the plan of redemption, God's plan of sending Jesus to die for the sins of every person that would place their faith and trust in him, was so sure, was so certain that it could be talked about this way. That Jesus Christ is actually seen as slain before the foundation of the world. Because nothing thwarts the plan of God. Before Adam and Eve were created, this was the plan of God. Their sin didn't catch God by surprise. The sending of Jesus was always plan A. There was never a plan B to, be, to correct the problem of plan A. Think about Jesus, or think about Genesis chapter 22 for a moment. If you want to turn there, it might be helpful to see it. We're going to be here for a little bit. 
This is the story in the life of Abraham where God calls Abraham to, to offer his son as a sacrifice on Mount Morah. Understand that at this point in, in Abraham's life, Abraham is an, an old man by our standards. He was 86 when he had Ishmael. Hagar, right, Ishmael's mom, servant of Sarah, slave of Sarah. Abraham was 100 years old when Sarah gave birth to Isaac, the child of, of promise. And by Genesis 22, when this story happens, Isaac is probably like 15. So Abraham is 115-ish at this point. And Abraham loved Isaac deeply from birth as any father would. And now that love for his son has grown over the past 15 years. Abraham loved the boy, there is no doubt. He was a result of God's fulfilled promise to give him a son. He was the child of promise. That in God, God was going to, to use him to, to bless the, the nations he promised that the one that, that would crush the head of the, the serpent who would deal with the curse of, of sin and death would come through him. So that, that's where we are. So God comes to Abraham. This wasn't new. God came to Abraham many times. And God tells him. He says, I'm going to ask something of you, Abraham. And Abraham says, yes, go ahead. It's no problem. I'll do it. He says, well, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take Isaac, the son of promise, the one through whom you are going to have great prosperity and, and through whom I'm going to send the Messiah. I want, I want you to take this boy to the mountain that I'm going to show you and there you're going to offer him as a burnt offering. I want you to kill your son. We don't know the, the torment that this caused Abraham that night. Did he question everything? How did he wrestle with this? Um, I mean, we could only speculate. I'm sure that he didn't sleep much, what father could. But however the night went, by morning Abraham was settled and he was committed to being obedient to God's command. In Genesis 22.3 we read this. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place where God told him to go. He was resolute. Of course, this experience is God testing Abraham's devotion, right? It was God, it was God everything to Abraham or was there something else? Have you ever noticed that sometimes God's good gifts to us become the objects of our devotion? It's often the, the good things that distract us from our vision. Our family is a big one, isn't it? Family is a, a gift from God, there is no doubt. There's, there's no doubt about that, but sometimes we put the gift before the giver. I don't want to get on a, a soapbox here at all, but I, I will just bring this up because I, I saw it this past week and it seemed to, to really fit here. It was actually a clip from September 2018 that was making its rounds again. Matt Chandler was speaking to parents and he said that their, their focus should be on discipleship and not athletics. 
And his fear was, as he said it, that parents were offering their children on the altar of athletics. A vivid picture, isn't it? In other words, his concern, I would say, is that parents were putting the gift of children above the giver of the gift, and that manifested itself in the pursuit of athletics over discipleship. Watchman Nee said it this way. He said, Isaac represents many gifts of God's grace. Before God gives them, our hands are empty. Afterwards, they are full. Sometimes God reaches out his hands to take ours in fellowship. Then we need empty hands to put into his. But when we have received his gifts and are nursing them to ourselves, our hands are full. And when God puts out his hands, we have not empty hands for him. The point here is that we need to let go of the gift in order to have an empty hand to grasp God's. We shouldn't hold too tightly to the gift, right? We recognize the difference between the, the gift and the giver. And he adds, Isaac can be done without, but God is eternal and cannot. So, of course, this experience for Abraham is a test of his devotion to God. But there's something else here that we should take note of. It was also a, a spiritual test. A test of his spiritual perception, say. Just think about all of the things that Abraham learned of God leading up to this point. He was tempted to think that God might not keep his promise when he took his wife's servant and had a child with her to be his heir. Learned a lot through that experience. God taught him that the blessing would not come that way. He wanted to, to substitute Ishmael for Isaac before Isaac was born. God showed Abraham through a miracle that the promise would come through Isaac. And now God wanted him to take Isaac's life. Go back in your mind to that evening after God told him this. I know it's, I know it's speculating a little bit here, but Think about what must have passed through Abraham's mind based on what we know, okay? So I'm speculating, but I'm speculating because I, I, think, we, I think we can know what happened. He must have said something like, I know Isaac is the child of promise and that God has shown me time and time again that he will not send the blessing through somebody else. It has to be Isaac. Isaac is the one. God went to, to great lengths to show me this. I tried to go off on my own to fulfill God's promise, but that wouldn't work. I waited for Isaac, and God provided. He's the one. All my life, I've waited for this one. It's Isaac. But now God is asking me to kill him. How can this be? If I put him to death as God commands, then how will God fulfill his promise? How can God do it? It was a real conundrum that Abraham faced. But Abraham also knew what happened 
if, if he would try to step in. As Abraham thought about this, he, he must have thought about the God who brought about Isaac's birth. If God was capable of doing that, he was also capable of bringing Isaac back from the dead. So, he got up the next morning and he was determined to be obedient to God. And in doing so, he believed that God was going to do something amazing. That he would raise Isaac from the dead. Someone might think, eh, you sure Abraham thought that? Not so sure about that. Well, go down to, go down to 22 verse 5, Genesis 22 5. Notice the wording. Then Abraham said to the young man, said to his young men, Stay here with the, the donkey, and I will go, I, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. He was telling the young men, You stay there, we're gonna go there, we're gonna worship, and then we're gonna come back. Abraham believed in one way or another that Isaac would be with him when he returned. In Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19, we read this. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able to even raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. The author of Hebrews here really gives us clear insight into how Abraham was thinking. What was alluded to in Genesis 22.5 is made clear in Hebrews 11. What I want us to see here is that Abraham did go up to that mountain and he did as God commanded him to do. He bound his son to the altar. He raised his hand over his head to drive a knife into the heart of his son and, and just as about as, as he was going to do that God once again intervened and provided a substitute a ram caught in the thicket in other words God was saying to Abraham I never intended that you would kill your son I, I wanted to test your willingness to obey me and show you in this way that I will do what I will do one day for your salvation and for the salvation of all who believe in my son. Just think about this for a moment. When Abraham was about to offer his son, God intervened and said, wait, I will provide. Right? The, the place that this happened was Yahweh Jireh, that the Lord will provide. What did the Lord provide? In that moment, he provided a ram for the sacrifice. But the real provision came a couple thousand years later when God was poised over his son, ready to plunge the, the knife into him, so to speak. And this time, God put his son to death. That's how God provided. This is truly the greatest gift. Let me close with this. The, the third reason that Jesus is the greatest gift to fallen humanity is that he is perfectly suited for our need. What does humanity need? First of all, we need a, a word from God. 
We need knowledge of God. Jesus is, is the answer to this because it is only in Jesus that we know who God is. We know what God is like and what God wants of us. Jesus is the, the word we read over and over. You want to know what, is, what God is like? You must look to Jesus. And when I say look to Jesus, I'm not saying look to Jesus subjectively. Not in meditation, not in other books. Look to Jesus as we find him in the scriptures. That is the, the sure word from God that we desperately need. We need to know what God is like. We need to know what God wants from us. We need to know our, our creator. And we need to look at Jesus in the scriptures. The second thing that we need is, is we have a need for a savior. We're sinners. This is revealed when we start looking to Jesus and his perfection and seeing who we are and, and what God demands of us. How God wants us to live and how we fall short. The fact is we are in need of being saved. Might not seem like it in this moment. But the more we look to Jesus, the more we see who God is, the more we recognize that we're drowning. We need a savior. And Jesus is that Savior. He meets that need perfectly. It's that simple. Jesus is the greatest gift to fallen humanity because he perfectly meets our needs. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning.